Today we are talking about peace, real peace. Can we have real peace? Uh, It's an interesting question because so much effort is made to either make peace or keep peace. And you know this. Maybe you've been working trying to keep peace between uh, your family or maybe a neighbor of yours and you're not seeing eye to eye with that person or in the office or maybe some people at school and you're like, gosh, I need peace with this person. You're working at it, but it's hard to come by. We know that... um, that uh, diplomats on a on a bigger level, diplomats all around the world work really hard at bringing peace and making peace and keeping peace. And sometimes it works for a little while, maybe a year or so, and then um, a treaty may be established, but it's kind of fragile. And a few years down the road, things change, and there's uh, there's there's war again, and and uh, and not peace. Can you really count on peace? So what does God's Word say about this? We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Familiar words for um, us, particularly at Advent time. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with a lamb. The leopard will lie down with a goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with a bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Can we really have peace At the time of this writing, there was not peace in Israel. The Israelites were threatened by the Assyrian Empire, as uh, the prophet Isaiah was writing this. There was a lot of fear to go around. Um, At this time, Assyria was uh, plundering the northern tribes of ancient Israel. And... um, And destroying cities, they were taking many Israelites captive. And Assyria just kept moving further south toward the the southern tribes of Israel as well. In fact, Assyrian records, um, historical records, indicate 46 southern cities um, in Israel were not 
counting the northern cities, 46 southern cities were taken over by Assyria. That's a lot of cities um, that were taken over by Assyria. And in verse 1, Isaiah offers a pretty shocking image of what has happened to Israel. And it's the image of a stump, a tree stump. And it says, a shoot will come up out of the stump of Jesse. Now that may not seem like a shocking phrase to us, but for the ancient Israelites, it was, it was, it was a horrible scene. Why? Who was Jesse? Jesse was David's father, right? And this is using a tree stump as an image, as a metaphor of, of what was happening to Israel. David, remember David? David to whom God said, uh, there will be a descendant on your throne forever and ever, David, that David. And now God is saying, there will be a stump. Be a tree that's been lopped over. Now, if this tree, the tree of David, were cut down, then any tree could be cut down for Israel. It's like, what's the worst news that can happen? This is it. David's lineage, David's kingship, cut down like a stump. Everywhere Israel looked, it was like a field of stumps at this time. So it's pretty bleak. And it's in this bleak context that God says, but I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to send up a shoot, a branch. I'm going to send my Messiah, my chosen one. Now, I want to point out three things that this text uh, does. It says uh, what the Messiah has, says what the Messiah does, and what the Messiah is and why all of this can give us peace. So let's look at those three things uh, the Messiah has. Look at verse 2 in your scripture. It says what the Messiah has. The Messiah has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will rest on him, verse 2 says. So the Messiah has the Holy Spirit. What's the big deal about the Messiah having the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because of what the Holy Spirit brings in the Messiah's life. See, the rest of verse 2 says that he is the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might or power, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, one thing that has been done um, by many a preacher is uh, a just a thorough dissection of those six attributes of the Spirit. Um, And we're not going to do that today. (laughs) Um, If you kind of squint at that second bullet point, wisdom and understanding, counsel, knowledge, fear of the Lord, it it almost sounds like it's talking about something similar, right? Our thought life, what we know, variations of our thoughts, what goes on in our minds, how we process things. So we're just going to kind of squint at uh, that verse instead of dissecting it and parsing out exactly what is different between wisdom and understanding. Let's just think of, let's think of it in this terms. Um, what, what this describes that the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the Messiah 
is giving him the ability to do this. The Messiah knows the right things. The Messiah knows how to apply the right things. And the Messiah knows it holds the power to do the right things. I think that sums up pretty well what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the Messiah. He knows the right things. He knows how to apply the right things. And he holds the power to do the right things because of the Holy Spirit in him. And we could say that that goes for all those who have the Holy Spirit, like you and me, Christians. At least our growing ability to know the right things, to know how to apply the right things, and to hold the power to do the right things. So what does the Messiah do? The Messiah does, with the Holy Spirit empowering him, the Messiah does. Verse 4 says, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice... He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So he's going to be making decisions on behalf of the poor. He's going to be compassionate. He's going to be generous towards the poor. He will judge in favor of the poor. He, and what does that mean? He will make things go their way. And this is so countercultural to Israel at the time because the previous chapters, if you look at Isaiah, the previous chapters in Isaiah talk about how Israel had committed great injustices to the poor, had oppressed the poor, and the Messiah is coming in led by the Holy Spirit, and he is undoing that. In the second half of verse 4, if you look at verse 4, the second half of it, it describes the effort the Messiah will use to bring justice to the afflicted. Because we might, we might um, say, ah, that's just soft-hearted, right? To, to show compassion to the poor. Um, that's a soft-hearted action done in a soft-hearted way. But actually, the end of verse 4 paints a much different picture of how this is done. Verse 4 ends, the Messiah will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So apparently the Messiah means business as he goes about undoing all the injustices to the poor in Israel. The Messiah means business. Now, it's probably pretty important for us to think about who are the wicked. Because it says the Messiah, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Now, who are the wicked? Um, when you think of who the wicked are, what do, you, what do you think of? I mean, you might think of the wicked being people that break God's laws, the, the, the lawbreakers, right? That, that might fit our description of who the wicked are. Uh, truth be told, if we were really honest, we might even identify the wicked as anyone who uh, gets in my way of realizing my dreams, or anyone who, who makes it difficult for me to have the life that I want. They've got to be the wicked ones, right? They're standing in my way. So that might be secretly who we identify as the wicked, but who does God identify as the wicked? So I want to look at two scriptures in Isaiah. Uh, the first is Isaiah 13, verse 11. And God says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked 
for their sins. There's the, there's the wicked. Who are the wicked? I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So here, the wicked, who are they? They are the arrogant. They are the prideful. They are the presumptuous. Anyone who presumes, ah, I can do this on my own. I I don't really need the help of God. That's that's the wicked. There is this do-it-yourself mentality that says, ah, if I just plan enough, if I work hard enough, if I prepare enough, I will be just fine in life. I can be successful. I can do whatever I set my mind to. Have you ever heard that? You can do whatever you set your mind to. If I follow the right investment strategies, if I am shrewd in my business dealings or how I deal with people, if I use enough street smarts, I can do this. And those who are not street smart, (laughs) those who are not diligent, those who are not prepared, those who have misfortune come their way, ah, they should have been ready. They could have done it. They should have done it, but they didn't do it. There's this do-it-yourself mentality that is so prevalent today. But Isaiah 11 suggests that there's a different kind of smarts and insight that the Messiah has. A different kind of smarts. This wisdom that the Holy Spirit brings the Messiah will move him to make decisions for the poor of the earth. That's wisdom for the Holy Spirit. How can you live your life in a way that benefits the poor around you? That's different than the street smarts wisdom that we find so prevalent today, right? For those who couldn't bring it all together financially, or who just couldn't overcome their circumstances, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit says... Live in a way that benefits them. So the next place Isaiah mentions the wicked is in Isaiah 14. So look at verses 4 and 5. How the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. So the wicked here are those who oppress others. And the Messiah is going to come and he's going to reverse these things. Those who, oppress, those who oppress others, those who say, I'm capable on my own of getting things to work out for me, those will be the people that find themselves on the bottom. It's just a very different wisdom for life, isn't it, that the Messiah brings to the world. Now, what makes all this even more astounding is who the Messiah is. So I want you to think about someone that works for the poor. Someone that seeks to help advantage those who are disadvantaged. Um, How would you describe such a person? You might describe such a person as noble, as giving, as generous, as sacrificial. Look at what Isaiah describes as such a person. Isaiah 11, verse 5 says, Righteousness 
will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So who is the Messiah? Well, it's right there. He's righteous. In other words, he is right for what he does. He's faithful. He is coming to set back the way things should be the right things for the world. That's what the Messiah is doing. Now I want to ask you, is the coming of such a person enough to take away all your fears? Because that's what we're talking about during this series. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid. Is the coming of such a person enough to take away your fears? I mean, the world seems to be full of um, some pretty good people. Some pretty good people out there. And yet, there's plenty of fear to go around, even though the world is full of pretty good people. And the world surely even consists of a strong handful of really good people, really noble, really generous, just really giving, sacrificial, good, good people. People with great influence, even. And yet there is plenty of fear to go around. So is the coming of such a person as the Messiah really enough to take away our fears? I was watching a a documentary um, just the other day on Thomas Jefferson, number third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, one of the things the the documentary revealed is, is he so resisted the idea of an unapproachable, aristocratic president that when Thomas Jefferson became president, he started an open-door policy in the White House, meaning anyone could go into the White House and see the president. Anyone. If you want to go talk about your problems, you, you just walked on in. And there might have been certain times during the day when Thomas Jefferson made himself available, but this open-door policy. See, one of his concerns is he wanted people to be able to come in and know that the president was listening to their problems. Now, I think that's pretty cool. There is one really influential person, the president, who is willing to listen to the problems of the people. Now, would that take away all of your fears? If you could do that, if you could just walk into the White House and say, Mr. President, I need a minute of your time. i got some problems. Would that be enough to take away all of your fears? Well, no. Because some of our fears go like this. Mr. President, I need to tell you about my problems. I've got cancer. I've got cancer. Or, Mr. President, my son or my daughter is a Marine overseas in a military hot zone, and I'm really worried about my child's safety. Can you tell me that she will be okay, Mr. President. I wish I could. I'm sorry. I can't. How could this one really good person, this Messiah, take away all of our fears? Because that's the promise. So here's verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And if you're like me, the first time you read that, 
you might not know what to think about that because uh, I don't want my Messiah to go to a resting place, right? I want my Messiah to, like, go to a war room and start planning how he's going to defeat evil. I want my Messiah to, to go to the Oval Office, his Oval Office, and start executing some orders to to bring some order, to bring some justice, to bring some good. I want my Messiah to go to his throne room and start reigning. I don't want my Messiah to go to a resting place. And of course, his resting place is exactly that. It's his throne room. Look at Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion... He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless. Look look what the Messiah is going to be doing on the throne. What will he be doing? Verse 15, I will bless her. I will bless my people with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will take care of their needs. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. So the resting place is the place of the king sitting on his throne. So how can this one Messiah take away all of our fears in this way? This is what the Messiah will be doing. The Messiah will build his kingdom. That's the promise. That Jesus Christ is on his throne and he's building his kingdom. And the result is nothing short of, of bringing an almost unimaginable peace. Because how does Isaiah 11 describe this peace that the Messiah is going to bring by building his kingdom? What does it say? It says the animals. What are the animals going to be doing? The carnivores are going to be laying down with the herbivores, and they're not going to be eating the herbivores. They're going to be living at peace with one another. No threats to animals, no threats to children, even that child playing in the snake pit. No no harm will come. And this brings to mind Romans chapter 8. Got to, got to think about Romans chapter 8 when we read this. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 21 say, For the creation was subjected to frustration. This world was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. See, the whole creation is groaning, waiting to be liberated and enjoy a resurrection, just like we as the children of God will receive resurrection. See, right now the animals are suppressed. The animals are eating one another. The snakes are biting people. They aren't acting the way that God originally intended because the knowledge of God in the earth is being suppressed right now as well. But one day, the knowledge of the Lord will no longer be suppressed. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. It will be an explosion of the understanding of the Lord. And the earth will no longer be suppressed then either. Now, what does this mean for us? 
the good news of Christianity is not that a spiritual heaven awaits for us. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that resurrection awaits for us. And you know what that means. It means resurrected physical bodies. It means more than that, too, a renewed physical world that waits for the children of God to receive their resurrected physical bodies. Look at what Paul wrote, another scripture for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Think about what this says about the physical world. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we will have a, a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. We don't want to be found naked. I'm not talking about physical clothes, but physical matter. We want this physical body. Why does the Bible speak of our eternal home with physical images like a building, like clothes, like having animals, wolves and lambs, children and even snakes? Why all the physical images when talking about heaven? Because it's going to be a real, physical, resurrected world that God gives to us. And friends, resurrection, look at this promise, resurrection in the kingdom means we do not have to be afraid. See, have you ever wondered why people think back to the past when they think of the glory days? Oh, boy, the good old days. Everyone talks about the good old days in the past, the glory days when we were younger, right? When our bodies looked different, when times were different, when it was easier, all the good old days. Christianity says they are not in the past. The glory days are not in the past. Christianity says the glory days are to come. And so you may have lost now. But just wait. The real glory is coming. So I want you to think about your life right now. I want you to think where there appears to be a landscape full of stumps. Because I know in your life you can visualize at least one stump and maybe a field full of stumps. Um, If you're like me, you're able to think of a time when your life appeared to have more of a forest and not stumps, right? And then over time, that forest gets thinned. And, and, and maybe this is how that forest for you slowly got thinned. Maybe friends moved away. And that friendship void just never got filled. And so the forest gets thinned and there's a stump there. Or maybe work wasn't what it once was. Maybe you had hoped it would be more fulfilling and it just isn't that. Or maybe you were hoping for maybe some some upward growth in the company and you seem to hit a pretty short ceiling. Or maybe it's just gotten frustrating and unproductive and maybe there's a stump in that part of your forest. Or maybe your neighborhood isn't 
what it once was and looks like a stump. Or maybe your marriage isn't what it once, doesn't seem like it was what it once was. Or maybe your bank account doesn't seem like it once was. Or maybe your body doesn't seem like it once was. Sometimes you look around and that once flourishing forest starts looking like a field of stumps. So I think there's three things we need to know. One, God uses stumps to remind us of something. God uses stumps. The world as it is now is not our final home. This is what God is reminding us through stumps. See, he allows us to see and experience the stumps. He allows us to see and experience the world's bondage to decay so that our hearts won't get too comfortable. So that our hearts won't get attached to it, but instead to him. And there's this holy longing longing that happens when we live around some stumps, right? We we look forward to when God's kingdom comes in in full. And here's, here's the truth about God. God never relents from asking us and moving us to give our hearts to him. He never relents in doing that. He's always going to say, give me your heart, give me your heart, give me your heart. And he will move us to give our hearts to him by filling our landscape with stumps at times. But here's the other truth about God. God never worries that we'll be disappointed when we do hope in him. He never worries that we'll be disappointed when his kingdom comes in full. He doesn't worry that we're going to be let down. Because he knows the kingdom and the glory that he's bringing in. So that's the first thing we need to know. God uses stumps to help our hearts long for him. Two, and I think we need to realize this, um, sometimes God uses stumps, um, and he brings stumps into our lives because of his pursuit of justice. Um. You see, it's not that God says, oh, you're having too many good things in life, and I'm just going to take a few of them away. Ha! That's not why God brings stumps to us. But the reason that Israel all of a sudden was reduced to stumps is because they, were, they weren't looking out for the poor among them. They weren't looking out for the oppressed among them. And they had this, life is all about me and my comfort mentality. And we have to know God's kingdom is not one where you can pursue your best life at the expense of others. But, but God wants us to have our best life together in community, communally, where we receive God's goodness together. And so for the Christian, there is, there's an ongoing need to evaluate, what am I doing to help those who are oppressed or poor or in need around me? And sometimes God uses stumps to help us to reevaluate things in our life and ask the question, what am I doing to get on with God's agenda of providing for those in need around me? So sometimes God uses stumps to draw us back to him. Sometimes God uses stumps to draw us back to his ways. And three, and this is what I want to leave us with, just this image. Um, Because it's really important. God excels in making life grow from death. 
God excels in making life grow from death. God excels in taking a stump where there is no life and bringing about a shoot. A little bit of life, right? A little bit of hope. It's what God does. He'll bring about a little life, and that little life will grow. It starts off small, and it grows big. And the reason I say that is because that is exactly what Jesus said. One day, Jesus was talking about the kingdom that he was going to bring, and this is what he said. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed. Just, just this little seed. Which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. So friends, whenever you look out and you see a field full of stumps, what do we do? We look for that little bit of life, just that little bit of life, that little shoot. And it's God's sign. It's God's reassuring voice. Everything's going to be okay. Because I'm going to take this little life that's coming from my kingdom, and it's going to grow into a beautiful tree. And it will bring you comfort and shade and peace. You will have it just around the corner, and it will never go away. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to hang on to that vision of peace, that peace that you are going to bring, and it's going to be so pervasive, so present, so powerful, that even the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That creatures once thought of as threats will no longer be threats, but friends. And we will enjoy the fullness of your kingdom. Until that day comes, we pray that you would keep giving us these little shoots of life and remind us that you are here, that you're working, that you're active, that you're building your kingdom. It is an ongoing practice of yours to sit on your throne and to make decisions on behalf of the poor and the needy. And those who are sometimes, Lord, we identify with the poor and the needy. We need your grace and your blessings. And you look down on those who are in need, who humble themselves before you, and they say, Let me and you say, Let me give you give to you out of my abundance. Lord, will you help us to receive your grace and your mercy in abundance this morning? Will you help us to await your coming and be patient in our waiting, Lord? But we need you, and we pray for you to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.